something worth rejoicing over this morning. So thank you, uh, music team, Noel, for leading us in musical worship. Let's continue our worship now as we turn into the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. A very important chapter here. Uh, Acts chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the first 15, or excuse me, the first 12 verses together this morning. So if you please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 12, yes, I'm going to get there, Acts 15, verses 1 through 12, this is God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Lord, we just give you all praise and all glory for your marvelous, matchless grace. You have bestowed upon us lowly sinners who are in no way deserving of any favor or or mercy from an infinitely holy God. We just come before you rejoicing that this is a reality for us through Christ. And we love you and we love the Lord Jesus. He's precious to us. And uh, pray that you be blessed by our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come this morning to yet another monumentally significant section of Scripture, one that has had a profound impact on the history of the church, one that has been identified as not only being central in the book of Acts, but uh, in terms of location in the book, but also central in terms of its importance to the life of each and every believer, each and every disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the centuries, the millennia. A section of scripture which uh, forever changed how the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was proclaimed to the ends of the earth. For the next three weeks, Lord willing, we will consider together 35 verses 
And one of the most consequential sections of God's holy and inspired word that directly answers the question, how is a person saved? How is a person, how is a man or woman, a sinful man or woman, which describes every single human being in this room and every single human being in the world, then saved? or delivered, or rescued from the righteous wrath and the eternal wrath of an infinitely holy God? How is one justified? How is one to be made righteous in the sight of their creator who demands absolute perfection in every area of our lives? Who demands absolute perfection in deed, and word, and even every thought of our heart, every intention and inclination of our sinful and rebellious hearts, how are we woefully imperfect man and woman then saved from the consequences of not living up to those divine standards? How are we saved then? Is it through our good works? Is it by our our, our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds? Like there's some sort of divine scale? Is it through our external actions? Is it the things that we partake in? Is it the things that we do not partake in? Is it through our ongoing adherence to some religious system? Is it through our efforts? Is that how a man is saved? Or is it all of grace? Is it God's unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, mercy, and compassion, and grace? Or is it a combination of the two? Uh a holy God's grace and sinful man's effort together combined? Is it 95% our works and then 5% unmerited favor? Or is it 95% God's grace and 5% works? Or is it 99.999% God's grace and 0.001% our effort? What is it? How exactly is sinful man or woman declared just? or declared righteous for all of eternity in the sight of a holy God. Don't you want to know the requirements for being saved from God while at the same uh, same time being saved to God for eternal life? Don't you want to know that? Don't you want to know what we have to do? Well, that's what's made perfectly clear here in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35, and that's what we'll spend uh, the rest of our time together considering this morning as we look at the first 12 verses uh, today, though, it's, it's very important, right from the get-go, we are strictly discussing matters of salvation here, okay? Not the conduct of one who has already been saved or has already been justified. This is not a question of uh, how then shall we live or how then shall we interact with others in the church who have differing views related to the adherence to the Mosaic law post-conversion. We're not talking about that this morning. We're going to get into that in the the coming weeks, Lord willing. But the first 12 verses don't raise the question of how then shall we live in light of your new life in Christ. This is a question of do you even have new life in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you even have eternal life? And what were the means by which this new life was granted to you or given to you? That's what we're going to consider uh, together this morning. So let's dive right in here. If you remember, we closed out our time last week with a report of Paul and Barnabas strengthening disciples made throughout their first missionary journey. 
And they did this before finally returning to the church at Antioch from where they were sent. Luke says in chapter 14, verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They remained there no little time with the disciples. Now our verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so we get our first viewpoint here, and it's nothing new really. This is a viewpoint we've discussed multiple times, even through our uh, discussion in Acts, our consideration of Acts. Think of the Ethiopian eunuch. Think of uh, the regenerated men and women of Samaria. And of course, Peter's visit from Joppa to Caesarea to the household of a uh, centurion named Cornelius. Right? All these men and women were saved. Okay? They were god fears to be sure, but if we remember back in our time in Acts thus far, we didn't hear of a single one of them undergoing circumcision according to the custom of Moses. At least I didn't read that anywhere. Did you read that anywhere? Am I missing something here? Did we miss in our verse-by-verse exposition of this second letter from Luke to the most excellent Theophilus that all these men and women, or all these men were circumcised? Did we miss that anywhere? I mean, again, the, the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was a God-fearer to be sure, but I think he'd be the first to tell you that wasn't the same surgery. Even last week and the weeks preceding, you remember Sergius Paulus? The Roman council, he believed. The, the following week, Chris took us through Paul and Barnabas speaking boldly to some Jews who were harassing them, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. They began glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. No mention of circumcision, though, right? Did I miss something? Last week we read, Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Then at Lystra, after the Jews tried to rile up this crowd, they tried to stone Paul for preaching the gospel of Christ. Luke says, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they finally had preached the gospel to that city, that predominantly Gentile city, by the way, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. And nowhere do we read of these converts having to undergo circumcision according to the customs of Moses. Nowhere do we read that. Yet here in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, we have some coming down from Jerusalem, heading north to Antioch, saying, this very thing is required for salvation. Saying, you cannot be saved, delivered, justified, declared righteous, born again to everlasting life, forgiven and reconciled to an infinitely holy God unless you do something. You have to do something. Do you see that? 
That's their take. That's their view. You have to be circumcised. You have to have a little piece of your foreskin cut off, or you will be cut off and cast away from his loving presence for all of eternity. I mean, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, yeah, that, that's part of it, sure, but unless you've performed this act of obedience here, unless you've performed this outward act, you are outside of the kingdom of God. And ultimately, you, you are outside of God's ability to save you, is what they're saying. You got to do it. Well, I guess the first question I'd ask these guys is, what about the women? What if you're a woman? This is nothing new, brothers and sisters, this necessity within human nature, our sinful human nature, uh, to want to add something, to, to gain a right standing or, or appease some certain deity with outward acts of obedience here. It's like we have to do something. We've got to contribute somehow. It's our nature to have to do something to contribute to our position and standing before whatever God people want to worship. And, and it's crept, it, it crept into the church in the early days. And these guys here in verse 1 were representative of a larger group we'll meet in verse 5 who basically had a hard, if not impossible, time with shaking off the customs and traditions of their former life in Judaism. And, and frankly, nobody even asked them to shake those customs and traditions off. Nobody said you had to do, shake them off. The problem was, and the problem is, not only making adherence to law, customs, and tradition to be the prerequisites for salvation, but when they begin actively spewing that nonsense to those within the body. Okay? Here's the major problem. Look again at verse 1. Look closely now. Men came down from Judea. You always go up to Jerusalem. They came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching they were teaching, instructing the brothers, the converts who are part of the church at Antioch, these spirit-indwelled men and women of Antioch, they were teaching them that their conversions weren't actually valid because they weren't circumcised. They were infiltrating the church, and they were teaching heresy within this church. That was the problem. And Luke says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them, no small debate with them. Well, no kidding. After what they've seen, after what they've witnessed, after all the signs and wonders which accompanied and validated the message they were proclaiming, the gospel, a crippled man who had never walked, who was lame from his birth, all of a sudden leaping up and walking around, people getting saved, after all the unity and fellowship that was experienced by this local church in Antioch, which was made up of both Jew and Greek, by the way, then you have these disruptors, these false teachers come in and say, nope. Not real. That's not authentic. You guys aren't actually saved. But you can be if you just do this. That's the problem. You know, we've gotten a, a fair bit of slack for our views pertaining to those within charismatic circles, the word of faith movement, specifically towards those who claim to have the ability to speak in ecstatic tongues and heal and prophesy and whatnot. And we're okay with that. We're all right with that. Uh, getting the slack, I mean, uh, because there's a reason for it. It's so attractive to people. It's alluring. Well, who doesn't want to feel good? There's a, and, and its influence is such a huge part of the church, uh, this emotional. But I'll, I'm here to tell you, there's a fine line between 
The guy in his prayer closet speaking gibberish and baby talk, trying to convince himself that he's highly spiritual through pure emotionalism. And the cultists who say, you have to do it too, or else you haven't received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You know what I'm saying? Whether folks like it or not, there's a very fine line between people who say, yeah, you know, I want to be cautiously optimistic about what God's able to do and not do. I would say there's a possibility he could provide new revelation through a particularly gifted person. And those who say, I heard from God. I heard a voice from heaven. Here's what he said to me. You need to do this. You need to do that. You need to conduct yourself in this way or that way. And if you don't, well, you're not a true believer. It surely won't be long before they start saying and do say, God told me you need to give me all your money. (laughs) Or God told me you need to sleep with me or whatever, you know? Or God gave me the gift of healing. You just have to come to my big crusade. You just have to sow this, this faith seed by this $23 prayer shawl in honor of Psalm 23. And I'd say, listen, you want to fool yourself into thinking you can speak in a language nobody in their right mind has the ability to decipher, have at it. Go for it. Again, the problem is when somebody comes into the church and says, you all need to do it too. Or you need to do this, that, whatever it is, or you are not saved. This is the greatest heresy. We're reading it. And that's why Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension with them. Really, because ultimately they own only... uh, They uh, aren't only diminishing, but they are destroying Christ's work on the cross at Calvary. These men were teaching. They were were actively teaching in the church that, that Christ was incapable of carrying out his intended purpose to the full extent. Therefore, it's our responsibility to pick up where he fell short. That's what they're saying. Christ's death was not sufficient. You have to X, Y, Z, whatever it is. As one commentator said, in short, these false teachers were saying that the people had to go through Mount Sinai before they could go to Mount Calvary. And you know what? They still do it, right? Every false religion does this. In fact, this just happened last week. I'm sure you all saw this. Uh, Listen to an article from this past Monday. Dan, thanks for sending. A priest has resigned from a Catholic church in Phoenix, Arizona, After it was determined, he incorrectly performed thousands of baptisms for decades by changing one word. Yeah, so did I. Father Andres Arango resigned from St. Gregory Catholic Church in Phoenix after it was determined he used the word, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, instead of the correct phrase, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is according to Thomas J. Olmsted, the bishop of, of the Diocese of Phoenix. Quote, Arango served as pastor and the administrator and the vicar and other religious titles in Arizona, California, and Brazil over the past 20 years. The Diocese of Phoenix said that because of his errors, all the baptisms he has performed until June 17, 2021 are presumed invalid. This is, not, this is no joke. It was a real sight. 
The, the diocese told USA Today that Arango performed thousands of baptisms during his, his time in priestly ministry. Now, the major issue comes when you get to the next line in the article. Baptism is a requirement for salvation, according to the Diocese of Phoenix. Twenty years have gone by. Thousands of baptisms have been performed. Thousands of people who were deceived into thinking they were saved by water baptism by these demonic, false-teaching priests and bishops now, in a sense, have even the false assurances of salvation ripped from their desperate hands because some guy said, we instead of I. That so-called priest has nothing Nothing to do with the salvation of the eternal souls of those people. Amen. Nothing. In fact, he likely contributed much more to their eternal damnation. And not because he said we. And it's not just Catholicism or even the Eastern Orthodox Church who teaches this. They're just the most pervasive. Protestants do the same thing. Now, some Lutheran churches affirm baptismal regeneration. Anglican churches, the Church of England, the Church of Christ, Assemblies of God, they, they say the same thing. Repentance followed by water baptism is what saves a person. Neither of them do. Really no different from the cults who survive and even thrive on teaching works-based righteousness. Mormons will look you in the eye right now and they'll say, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And <laughs> in adherence to the doctrines and covenants put forth by the prophets and the apostles of the Mormon temple. Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. They do the same thing. This is how Satan deceives people. How cult leaders and leaders of false religions flourish, having the lusts of their flesh fulfilled. Islam teaches that salvation is accomplished by practicing and repeating the five pillars of Islam, fasting, pilgrimage, giving alms, praying five times a day, and of course, confessing that everyone's favorite pedophile, Muhammad, is the true prophet. In Hinduism, the idea of salvation or the way to salvation is by eliminating evil in your life until you are pure enough to merge with Brahma. In Buddhism, the idea of salvation is that the elimination of desire leads to eternal bliss. In Judaism, as in the case of these false teachers who came down to Antioch, they say you must be circumcised. You must obey the Mosaic law and customs, not to mention the oral traditions, which even their most prominent rabbis still can't agree upon you've got to obey them anyway. This is what separates biblical Christianity from everything else in the world. We do not earn or even alter our standing before a holy God based on anything we do. We depend completely and totally on his sovereign grace. Just think about what's being said by these Judaizers. Just think about this. Who seemingly know all about the God of Israel far better than probably many of us do, uh, they were saying that God's grace was insufficient. That somehow the God of the heavens and the earth 
the one who spoke everything into existence by the word of his power, the one who gave you your life and sustained your life this very moment as you're sitting there listening to me right now, is not able to then grant you everlasting life in his presence without your help. That's what they're saying. But that's not what he says, is it? That's not what he says in his word. That's not what he's ever said in his word. I mean, good night. These guys came down from Judea as, as well as uh, the guys in Jerusalem, they should know better than anyone that circumcision isn't required for justification or salvation. They should know this better than anybody. In, in Genesis 15, Abraham's faith, faith was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous in the sight of a holy God by his faith in Genesis chapter 15. Well, he didn't even get circumcised till two chapters later. Look at this, Acts 15, 6. And Yahweh brought Abraham, Abram outside and said, Look toward the heaven, number the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to them, Him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Just like that. Justified by faith alone. Then years go by. I mean, Sarah can't get pregnant. Abram goes into her servant, Hagar, at least nine months later, right? She gives birth to Ishmael. We'll look in Genesis 16, 16. It says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Then, in Genesis chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, 13 years later, 13 years after Ishmael was born, 14 years since he was declared righteous before a holy God in Genesis chapter 15, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. By the way, you're not Abram anymore. You're Abraham now. Look, and then look at it up here. Let's go to the next one. That's right. And God said to Abraham, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a what? Sign. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. It was a sign. It's just a sign. He was justified by his faith 14 years earlier. Right? We'll go on to find out he was called to this justification from before the foundations of the earth. We're, we're going to spend a lot of time in, in Paul's letter to the Galatians over these next few weeks. Uh, most, most think this was written just before the 15th chapter of Acts, but listen to what Paul says in the third chapter of that letter. He says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if it, did, it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and just as Abraham was counted to him as righteousness? Believe God, it was counted to him 
as righteousness. Circumcision didn't even come around till 14 years after Abraham was already justified by faith alone. The law of Moses doesn't come for another 400 years. So I don't understand how these guys could possibly have such strong conviction regarding salvation by grace alone, uh, by grace plus some merit, plus some human achievement. I, I don't even get how it's possible for them to do this. I guess we just have to, like Paul, call them what they are. Uh, those who sought to lead the flock astray, bewitchers, slanders, false teachers. He, he said, I wish these guys would emasculate themselves. In other words, get out of here and go finish the job then. Go all the way. More on Galatians in a bit. Look at our verse 2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, boy, I'd say, I like the NA, NASB there, uh, after Paul and Barnabas had, had a heated argument with them and a debate with them, uh, stasis, strife, uproar, after Paul and Barnabas had a heated argument and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, brought great joy to all the brothers. <coughs> so on their way up to Jerusalem, this 250 to 300 mile journey up the Mediterranean coast, what were they doing? They were bearing testimony to the power of God and salvation. Uh, they're bearing testimony to the gospel. And the Gentile inclusion uh, through the gospel, which means they're primed, they're pumped for this meeting in Jerusalem because they've seen firsthand these miraculous transformations take place. They've seen the promises of the scriptures being fulfilled with their own eyes. And Luke says that <coughs> these reports were met with great joy. It brought great joy, great inner gladness, great delight to the brethren now contrast that with the arrogant, snobby, stuffy, buzzkill mentality of the Judaizers or those whose intention it was to, to rob these new converts in Antioch of their joy. Rob them of their joy by calling their salvation inadequate, invalid. Not Paul and Barnabas, though. They are messengers of joy, of joy. They come up to Jerusalem telling the brethren the good news the whole way. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders. They declared all that God had done with them. They were welcomed into the church. They were warmly received. They were accepted deliberately and, and readily. And all the time, they're de deflecting the glory to the Lord. Notice the, the declaration of, of Paul and Barnabas. God did this with us. He could have done it with anyone, really, but he didn't need to use us, but he chose to do it with us. And they're bearing testimony to what God did by his sovereign grace alone. This was truly a joyous occasion, but again, it doesn't last. Okay, look who shows up in verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Okay, now it's straight up. No punches pulled. 
You get circumcised, you obey the law. The law of Moses. The law of Moses? Which law of Moses? Answer, yes. <laughs> All of them. Now, Luke is saying something that I think is important to emphasize here. These guys were from the sect known as the Pharisees, one of three major sects in Judaism at the time. Men who, even before Christ came, believed in the resurrection. Uh, they, they believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed in eternal life. They believed in angels and demons, the inspiration of Scripture, the promises made through the prophets. And Luke says here that they believed. They were believers. They had broken with a good number of their fellow Pharisees who hated the Lord Jesus Christ and, in fact, had believed that he was who he said he was. They just, at this point, were confused that he had done what he said he was going to do, Namely, reconciling sinful man and holy God through his substitutionary work and atonement on the cross at Calvary. They didn't believe that. They didn't feel like that was good enough. Not yet. So Luke says in verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. This is where we get the term council. <coughs> Unlike in chapter 6 where it was just the apostles who met here, we see it was both the apostles and the elders, the local church elders. More churches were being established. So they were there. And why not? This is, a, again, a monumentally significant issue. We're talking about salvation here. There are requirements for eternal salvation. Uh, Spurgeon said this is the vital doctrine of Christianity. Salvation by grace and that grace revealed in our crucified Lord. Martin Luther described justification by grace through faith as being the article with and by the church stands. Excuse me, the article with and by with which the church stands. He said, we must not yield nor give up this article, though heaven and earth should perish. That's how important this is. Which is why we're so glad to see Luke say in verse 7, after there had been much debate, this is not a quick decision here, after much debate with those having apostolic authority as well as the local church elders, Peter stood up. And of course Peter stands up, right? <laughs> this is why we praise the Lord for Peter, because Peter always stands up and Peter always speaks up. Here Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Now, Lord willing, we're going to reference this again next week, but I want you to notice a few details that are, very, are really important. Here we see the Apostle Peter going back 10 years. This has been 10 years now to his interaction with Cornelius and all his household. In the early days, Peter says, 10 years ago, I went through this. And that's right, he did. Remember in Acts chapter 11, after the rooftop, rooftop vision in Joppa, after the long trip up to, uh, down to Caesarea, after the angel of the Lord visited the house of Cornelius, who told Peter that he saw and heard both the, this angel say, send to Joppa, bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. You know what? That's exactly how it happened. Then we see Peter going back to Jerusalem, only to be met by the circumcision party who criticized him, saying, you went to uh, uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter essentially says, look, forget circumcision and the customs of Moses for a minute. I didn't even get done preaching my sermon. 
As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's what he told them then. In the meantime, many, many years later, many miles later, many sermons later, many gospel proclamations later, multitudes and multitudes of Greeks are coming to true and saving faith without first becoming Jews. Yet, here we are at this council, and we're talking about the same thing. Brothers, hear me. Listen to me. I want you to notice uh, Peter's methodology here. It's a complete deflection of both the glory and the responsibility to the sovereign will of God in all these occurrences. In other words, he says, look, this is just how it is. This is how it happened. And if you've got a problem with the plan of salvation, take it up with the architect. I'm just telling you what I know. I'm just telling you what I saw with my own eyes. Look at that in verse 7. He says, God made a choice. God chose that Gentiles would hear and believe. Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. God knows. God bore. God gave. Look at verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. He made no distinction. He chose the Gentiles, not me. I didn't choose them. He cleansed their heart and said that it was by faith alone. Not me. It's not my plan. He's the one who prepared the hearts to then indwell them with his Holy Spirit before anything even close to circumcision was even able to be mentioned. I went into this house and I began to preach. And even before I finished my sermon, even before I finished my introduction, they were saved. They, they were converted. For they were hearing them speak in tongues unlearned yet known languages, extolling God, praising God. So Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have, been, who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized, water baptism, in the name of Jesus Christ. Interesting, salvation first, water baptism second. Interesting. Then they asked him to remain for some days. God did this. Not me. He says, I was, I was fasting and praying on Simon the Tanner's roof. He showed me this vision of a sheet coming down with all these animals. You wouldn't believe the animals that were on this sheet. They were repulsive. And yet, God rebuked me, saying not to call unclean what he had made clean. And we'll get into more of Peter's hesitation to, to accept this next week, but he says, next thing you know, I'm on a Roman commander's house. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. And so I had to ask myself, and I'm asking all of you this morning the same thing. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in his way? That's what he says to these guys. Look at verse 10. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why do you test the living God? Why are you testing him? 
if you're saying that the men and women of Cornelius' household weren't actually saved, though it was confirmed by God through miracles and before many witnesses, if you're saying these conversions were invalid because they weren't circumcised, you're saying that God made a mistake. Right? Which means you're saying that you know better than God. Which is the very definition of putting the Lord your God to the test. Which is a major violation of the very law you claim to be a zealot for. He told Moses and all Israel, you shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he, with which he has commanded you. He said it right there. You shall do all things written in my law. All things. But like our father's past, you have utterly failed. You weren't able to bear the heavy weight of the requirements of the whole law. You weren't able to live in perfect obedience and adherence to the law of God. And therefore, you are just as desperate for a savior as was that Roman centurion. So get over yourselves. That's what this speech is all about. Get over yourselves. A yoke, by the way, was a wooden frame placed on the backs of animals to restrict their movement. And Peter says, you're putting them, you're putting on them something even we couldn't handle, even we couldn't bear. And in the process, you're testing God, which was utterly terrifying to any uh, good Jew, the thought of testing God. Then in verse 11, this is just like the nail in the self-righteous pharisaical coffin, Look at verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Do you see what he's saying there? Do you see that? Look, look at, again at verse 11. No longer does he say Gentiles are saved just like we are. But now he's saying you can be saved just like them if you would stop questioning the manner in which God has chosen to do it. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter says, we will be saved by the grace of God alone. Salvation is all of grace by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and again, <coughs> there might be some here who think that it's our faith that saves us. Like, like we have the ability to conjure up enough faith to stand justified before a holy God. Like our salvation is depe depending on the, the faith that we muster up. Like, oh, if I can just get enough faith, like I'll be there. But remember, Christ is the, found, the founder. He's the author and the perfecter of faith, which means that any faith that we have was granted to us. It, it, it was given to us as a gift from God to them who believe, to then believe on Christ for salvation. We have to be given the faith to even believe. That shows you how far away it is from works-based righteousness. Brothers and sisters at Lakewood Bible Chapel, I want to remove any yoke that has been placed upon you by folks who say that you have to do anything 
to earn your salvation. That you have to, in your own strength, do anything to be justified before a righteous and holy God outside of believing in his testimony. Believing in the testimony of his holy and inspired word, his testimony that says Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that eternal life is available to all who would but believe in the gospel. But recognize, even if you believe his testimony, it was a belief granted to you by no doing of your own. It was a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no man may boast, because we would all day. (coughs) So rest in this reality. Just rest in it. Don't don't fight the reality that it wasn't you. (laughs) It was never about anything you did. Enjoy the freedom. Enjoy being released from the bondage of the law, which we'll talk about next week. Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. (sighs) I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. But you have the freedom to get circumcised. This is what freedom is. If you accept it, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Okay, if you want to say circumcision is required for transformation, salvation, justification, fine. You've got to keep the whole law. The entire law. Let me know how that works out for you. All right? I love Peter's statement here. But we believe that we will be saved not by works of the law, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Luke writes, And all the assembly fell silent. Can you imagine? They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So we see here three main exhortations in this chapter. You see Peter, who we just heard from, uh, then Paul and Barnabas. We're not sure what they say, but we've been studying it for the past few weeks. Then next week we'll hear from James. And James will come and he'll say, look, the prophets told us this was going to happen. Guys, come on. Yet another reason why it's so ridiculous and such a dangerous false teaching that folks ought to unhitch from the Old Testament or, or neglect the Old Testament Uh, James will say, look, the prophets said this would happen. We're we're all together now, so how are we going to cohabitate and fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ here? But in terms of requirements for justification before a holy God, this chapter marks the issue being settled. Okay, this chapter 15, it's, it's over. It's done. God has said that he saves sinful men and women by his grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's done. 
If you're here and, and you're a believer this morning, rejoice that it was through absolutely no doing of your own. Yes, we're responsible to believe. Man has responsibility to believe. But understand that even that belief is dependent upon the sovereign and preordained will of God the Father. That's just what the scriptures teach. If you're visiting this morning and you've never known this type of salvation, we have some good news for you. Some very, very good news. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. Believe in the sacrificial death, burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for sinners and be saved. And in the strength of his spirit, turn from your sin and and turn to your creator by his grace alone, through faith alone in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Believe on Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? Amen. Let's pray now and Noel and the team will come up and lead us in some graceful musical worship. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.